0: Welcome to the Reported Missing Podcast, where we investigate why Canadians go missing, how it affects society, and what our country is doing to prevent and respond to the issue. Hi listener, I'm your host Becca, a Canadian journalist and missing persons advocate. If this is your first time listening to our podcast, this is only our second episode ever, so you haven't missed much. But I recommend you listen to our most recent episode if you haven't already. It's the host introduction and what you can expect episode. I talk about my background, why I'm doing this podcast and exactly what you can expect out of it. All of the work that I do with this podcast and my advocacy website, missingpersonscanada.ca is completely voluntary. So you listening and following us on social media really is the best way you can offer support. Today I am bringing you our very first interview and our topic of discussion is Canada needs a National Missing Persons Framework. I talk a lot about the fact that Canada doesn't have a National Missing Persons Framework and it's the whole reason why I'm doing this podcast in the first place. Now, you're probably wondering what a framework is, why we need one and what it would do exactly. Well, I figured it would be more compelling for you to hear about it from someone who has been advocating for a framework for years far longer than I have. Today's guest is Maureen Trask. When I first met Maureen, I was in the very early stages of this investigative project. At the time, I had just made my advocacy website and I was publishing stories of missing persons. Maureen came across one of my stories on Facebook and she sent me a message. She told me she was an advocate focused on supporting families and creating legislative change. She hadn't told me anything else about herself until I asked. Almost 10 years ago, Maureen's son, Daniel, went missing. While searching for Daniel, Maureen faced many challenges. Three and a half years after Daniel was last seen, his remains were found. You know, I've interviewed dozens of families of missing persons. I've sat with them for hours, listening to their stories and trying to understand all of these challenges they're faced with. All of these families know there are systemic flaws. They know there's a lack of support. But most of them are tired and put 100% of their time into finding their loved one. They don't have the time or the means to advocate for change. But Maureen wanted change. Even though her son Daniel was found, she couldn't just step away knowing other families were experiencing what she went through. Without support, with systemic flaws, and feeling helpless. I like to think that there are two types of self-defined advocates people who recognize a social problem and talk about it, and people who recognize a social problem and do something about it. And Maureen is all about action speak louder than words. She has helped enact legislation to help police in missing persons investigations. And in this episode, you will learn exactly what she has done, how, and why it's important. This is a story of her son Daniel and how he inspired her to push
1: for policy change. So Daniel was an amazing little guy, exactly two years, two days, uh, difference between him and his older brother. Daniel was very creative, very artistic. School wise, he struggled. So we had to help him along the way, but he did end up completing high school and he was very, hands oriented. So he got involved in roofing. And as he got a little older, he did some bartending, he loved the clubs and the clubs loved him. Uh, He was a good looking guy, I must say. And he loved life. And he lived it to his fullest.
0: Can you tell me about the year or maybe six months before his disappearance?
1: Did anything change about his lifestyle? In the last year, actually, I guess it would be six months, he decided to go up to Tomogamy, uh, which is an area we used to take the kids when they were little every summer. He wanted to do some solo canoeing. He actually learned during that time all about edible plants. He was not a hunter, so he wouldn't hurt any critters, but he relied on the plants. He also made friends up there. Bear Island is up there, which is a formal reservation. Uh, We knew them. We would go there every year to the powwow with with the boys. And he just enjoyed Indigenous spirituality and the way of life, quite frankly. Hard life, but simplicity. And he enjoyed being out on his own. How often would he contact you? Well, at that time, he had a cell phone. Cell phone um, coverage is very poor up there because you're in the remote country. But if you get high enough on some of the mountains and terrain, uh, you can actually get reception. So we'd, we'd get a text every now and again. We'd say, you know, try, try and get a hold of us every 10 days anyway. So he'd always made contact with us, which was wonderful.
0: How and when did you find out he was missing?
1: Well, it certainly wasn't immediate. His comings and goings, you know, in the home was up to him. He was 28 years old, so we're not going to tell him how to live his life. But we heard the car leave uh, one morning and we didn't know where he was going, but he didn't come home that night. And we're thinking, well, that's a Thursday. You know, maybe he's gone somewhere for the weekend. We'll give him the weekend and, and see what happens. During those first few days, we did call friends and family to see if, in fact, they had seen him or heard from him. And, you know, was there any contact? The only thing we learned is that he did pick up his paycheck and um, they were likely the last people to see him. Monday morning, we called the police and we said, you know, it's it's unusual that, you know, he wouldn't be in contact. It's been three days. So we'd like to file a missing persons report. We got a call from someone we didn't know them, um, but they said, your son's car is parked in Camp Wanapate. That was the, the youth camp that he used to visit we told the police this and they put two and two together and there was actually a tactical team doing training up in the area very close by. So they sent the tactical team over. My husband went up with a friend so he could be there and um, they did the total search around the vehicle and um, nothing was found second year we were searching, Daniel's winter clothing was found on a lake northwest of Tomogamy called Diamond Lake. And when that clothing was found, the OPP set up basically a, a base search station and they had helicopter and dogs and divers and boats coming in, you name it, they did it. And they were there for close to 10 days. They um, didn't find anything further, though. I recalled a day when he was likely four, four years old, and we were in a store, and they had those carousels with tons of clothes, and it revolved and kind of thing. I couldn't find him. He, I, I was just looking at something and turned around, and he wasn't there. And I'm calling, Daniel, Daniel, where are you? Well, it turned out he was hiding under this carousel, thinking it was a hide-and-seek thing uh with his mom. But it scared the heck out of me, you know. And at that time I thought, oh my gosh, if he were ever missing, missing, what would I do? And here I was, you know, twenty-four years later, um, dealing with him missing. We got a call. He was a retired forensic officer uh, in the Michigan police. So he knew how to do all the reports and what needed to be cleared plan-wise and everything. And I said, well, that's great, but i got to find out if the OPP even allow this. Two months of negotiations, basically, and they agreed that, you know, this team could come in, which was awesome. And the first time they were in, they found his backpack. And ironically, it was a little area that my husband and son couldn't finish because it was raining so hard the year before. And they found it. So we called the OPP and asked them, you know, to come in. And they did come in and collected it. But they said it wasn't substantial enough to do a search. And part of the issue was... Daniel's clothes was found sort of upstream and the backpack was found at the very bottom of the lake uh, in a little bay area. So it's like, well, was he going north? Was he going back to the camp? Like, where should we go from here? And the search team suggested carry on going north. They assessed that the backpack had some floating devices in it and because the winds are prevailing east it would have pushed it to the eastern shoreline and down to the bay and rested there we didn't find anything in 2014 but they said we'll be back in 2015 no problem and they were and they were only out for one day this time my husband went out i was at the cabin making supper And my husband arrives with one of the searchers behind him, the lead searcher. And I thought, where are the other two searchers? Did something happen? And then my husband said, they think they found him. And it was like this black cloud just lifted off of me because we had been searching so long, so hard, wanting some evidence of Daniel and this may or may not be it. I didn't think I wanted to go. I said, I'll wait till the OPP come tomorrow and we can see it. And after I thought about it for about 10 minutes, because they were going to go back to get the other searchers, I said, I think I want to go with you. When I walked into the area and they were they were looking over it the, the night before and keeping watch uh that you know no critters would come around. Um there was a huge pine tree and there are many up there. Um his skull was right beneath it, lying in pine needles and the contrast of the skull to the pine needles was like a blaring beacon almost. Um, it it was beautiful and peaceful. And to the right of that was a running brook, which sounded again so peaceful. And I thought, knowing Daniel, <laughs> he found this spot. <laughs> he knew what he was doing. Um, but I also know reality of mother nature and animals so I can live in my fantasy I guess. Um, It couldn't have been a more refreshing trip and and I was glad I went then because I did break down um, and had a good cry both me and my husband, so the next day when the OPP came, we didn't break down, so to speak, Um, but it's had I not done that, had I not gone to the site, and I went back the next day as well, um, but had I not gone at all, um, I know I would have regretted it. I had to see him. I had to see where where um, he was found. When it was, I think it was a two day wait um, between when they were found and and retrieved, and then we were informed, and we were informed in person. Now, keep in mind, it's not easy to get up to this cabin. <laughs> but these guys hacked their way in, two of them, and arrived around 9.15 at night to the cabin and said, yes, we, it's Daniel. And I thought, how kind of them to do that. And again, I, I it was bittersweet because you know although we knew um we didn't expect to not find him i mean once things of his were found particularly his winter clothing you know logic sets in and you say well there's no way he could have survived a winter or two winters or three winters you know um by himself and not have anyone come upon him. I mean he knew how to build forts and you know those kinds of things so he was very resourceful but very little hope that you know he would he would still be alive. When the forensic anthropologist from Sudbury came to collect the remains. Um, The skull had quite a fracture in it. And I will commend that anthropologist for spending some time to explain what he thought happened or could have happened. We won't know all the answers, but it certainly made sense. And that story would have been the fact that he likely disrobed because of hypothermia. He perhaps was trying to get down the rock to the water to get water, or he might've been disoriented and fell. But he obviously fell back because that's where the fracture was. And it was consoling for the gentleman to say, he wouldn't have felt any pain because it would have been instantaneous. So that was comforting to know that he wouldn't have suffered, but still difficult. And I said, well, so how did he get from there to here? Because it's another 20 kilometers. And because of the flow of the water, he would have likely um, flowed up Diamond Lake over a lift over into Lady Evelyn, which is where he was found. And where he was found, there's a little catchment there. So they did find some other belongings of his in that area. And the divers came back actually, and did diving in that area and found some additional remains. And it all, Dead. some people said well maybe he was shot or maybe he came up pomp out play I said you know what I can't go there there's no evidence and there never will be so my head has to look for comforting things not for troubling things we got what I call the big answer we had the physical evidence that we needed to know whether he was alive or dead so we're very fortunate. Fortunate, again, to know where he was or where he was suspected to have been, and that we found him. So many many other families don't have a clue where to look, and that's gotta be painstakingly heartbreaking, to know that you can't even do anything because you don't know where to search.
0: I want to know more about the challenges that you faced while searching for your son, because that was really the stepping stone into what you're doing now, into the advocacy work that you're doing for missing persons in Canada. So tell me, what are some of the issues that you recognized with the system that you felt needed to be improved?
1: Well, I mentioned earlier that it was difficult to connect with families directly because you had no way of getting hold of them. And because you know, it's confidentiality gets in the way. Um, There wasn't kind of like a group established that you could reach out to. So the first thing I wanted to do was get a group going. We were successful. And one of the biggest issues I found was that these people uh, were angry at the police for the most part. And it's likely the most important relationship that led to us finding Daniel. And I thought, I've got to do something about this. So I asked them, why don't we get together with police and media and sit down and talk about the challenges families face and hear about the challenges that police face or media face and we were able to do that and it was such an eye-opener for everyone including myself to learn that police had no way of getting access to personal information we're talking about people of age who are missing where there is no evidence of crime and I just shook my head and I said something's wrong with this picture because if you can't investigate." How do you even know It's a, it could or couldn't be a crime? How do we flip the coin on this so that we treat every case as potential crime and prove otherwise that it's not? Well, it turns out they had a toolkit available to them through the Missing Persons Act, but Ontario didn't have that act, which gives police access to personal information and also locations to search and you may say well they can do that for you know get warrants for for crimes yeah that's legislated but there's nothing legislated for missing persons so when i learned about the fact that ontario was lacking this legislation i forged on with my MPP, Catherine Fife, amazing lady, and we did a five-year process to get it into Ontario. It's there now, it's finished its one year. Every year jurisdictions have to report on the use of that legislation just to make sure it's legit and they're not using it for other reasons. I'm still trying to get those reports from people, from jurisdictions to see if there's any patterns in the data that can help. What I'm finding is very few have used that legislation. I think, and you know, I raised this when when we had discussions about the legislation, they don't have the resources. That means they can do the job, but if there aren't people to be able to do the job, then it's not gonna get done. And does that jeopardize? The investigation of missing persons absolutely is there opportunity to have non gun carrying police i.e civilians do this kind of work because it's pretty much a paper process getting information passing that on to you know Uh, the investigating officer and then logging it. So, you know, we've got the proper reporting data. After I spent five years getting some provincial legislation in place, I thought, you know, it's not addressing the fact that missing is a social issue and we have to have more conversation around that. So I checked with other countries to see what they were doing The UK, Australia, and most recently Scotland have all adopted what's known as a missing persons framework. So what would that framework look like? Well, it would include protection, obviously. It would include support for the families, of which we have very little in Canada. It would include education but we're never gonna have what I believe any framework must have, which is consistency, accountability, and transparency. Without those three key objectives in play, nothing is going to succeed. And the Missing Persons Act is another good example. Because that, although federally recommended as a result of some reviews that came out of BC, we still have two territories and three provinces that do not have that legislation. They are disadvantaged, as was Ontario, until we got that in play.
0: But even now that it's in play, there's still the challenge of knowing if it's effective, if it's being used, and how it's being used.
1: Yes, yes. And there is a learning curve. Many of the Western provinces have had that legislation for more than five years, and have a stipulation to review it at least on a four to five year regular basis. So improvements are happening. I don't expect it to happen overnight. But I do expect if police are saying we need this, then they have to play a role in getting their resources to be able to use it.
0: Yeah, and I think that Canada still has a very reactive approach to dealing with missing persons. I mean, yeah, the police at the end of the day need the right tools and resources to do their job effectively. But it's not just about recognizing what police need to do their jobs. It's about understanding why people are going missing in the first place and how we can prevent people from going missing. And this is exactly what a framework would offer, but we don't even have one yet. And it also can't be the job of a single person. It has to be a multi-agency effort between scholars, community stakeholders, government representatives, families of missing persons, and experts.
1: Exactly. And I am... I see the national framework as kind of like a place to hang things, a place to organize the must-haves with a bottom-up approach to building in those three things I talked about, consistency, accountability, and transparency. Let's try and raise to the challenge let's try and get the right heads together. Because if this addresses all the issues that we're nitpicking at in a more cohesive way and is more beneficial to society as a whole, then what are we waiting for? Prior to Daniel going missing, I wouldn't have viewed missing as impacting me at all. I'd read the story in the paper. I'd think, oh, that poor family. And I'd turn the page and that would be the end of it. It's only through my experience of living it that's turned me into an advocate. In honour for Daniel and also for all the other families who are still looking for their missing loved one.
0: On a scale of one to 10, how well does Canada recognize missing persons as an issue?
1: Canada as a whole, I would say probably three. Um, Simply because unless it's touched your life, you you carry on. You, You don't worry about it. You don't have any vested interest for changing things. Will we get everybody on the same page? Um, I think a national framework will help us to get there. I'm not sure I know of anything else that would.
0: Before I end off any episode, I'm gonna be doing a recap of what we know, what we don't know, and what we need to know about the topic of discussion. So the topic of discussion in this episode was a national missing persons framework. This is something that Maureen and I are advocating for, so let's start off with what we know. We know that a missing persons framework would offer four things. A prevention strategy, a response strategy, support for families of missing persons, and protection for vulnerable people who are at high risk of going missing. We know that Canada doesn't have such a structure, but other countries like the UK, Scotland, and Australia do. We know that a framework cannot be developed by a single person, but it must be a multi-agency effort between stakeholders, government representatives, families, policymakers, and other experts. Now, let's move on to what we don't know. We don't know why Canada doesn't have a National Missing Persons Framework. We can assume that it's because missing persons is not recognized as a social issue, as a national concern, but we don't know. And we don't know how long it would take to implement one or how we would even go about that. You heard Maureen say that a Missing Persons Act took five years. It was a five-year process. And that's just a provincial legislation. A national framework would be a federal structure. We also don't know exactly how this framework is helping the missing persons issue in other countries. We will take a look at what and how other countries are addressing missing persons and if their approach is effective or not. So stay tuned for that. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you want to stay tuned, if you want to know more, you can follow us on Instagram at reportedmissingpod. Don't forget to subscribe and you can also visit our advocacy website, missingpersonscanada.ca, where I feature missing person cases in great detail. That's it for today. I will catch you next time.